One of the country's most successful sports gamblers, Billy Walters, lost the biggest bet of his life last Friday. A jury convicted him in the highest profile insider trading case in years, and this time, his losing bet can only be paid off in prison time. Walters was convicted of making $43 million by trading on inside tips given to him by Tom Davis, the former chairman of Fortune 500 company Dean Foods. The trial had all the elements of a movie script, a rarefied world of private jets and exotic trips where corporate executives mixed with professional athletes like Phil Mickelson. A seamy world of massive gambling debts and stock tips delivered on a burner phone dubbed the Bat Phone. But the odds were against Walters. A four-week trial and the jury convicted him after only about five hours of deliberations. Our guests are Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School, and Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Peter, former Manhattan U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara made his name by sending dozens of traders and corporate executives off to prison for insider trading. But that effort went off the rails after a 2014 ruling by the Second Circuit. So how important was this win for federal prosecutors? Well, it was important because it was so high profile. Billy Walter's is maybe the most famous uh, defendant since uh, Rajat Gupta, who was the former director at Goldman Sachs. And it, it just it almost had a tabloid feel to it with Phil Mickelson and Carl Icahn's name coming up, the government uh, FBI agent leaking information back in 2014 about the case. In a sense, it was high profile because it was tabloid. Um, the legal issues really weren't all that difficult. Um, and even if that Newman case from 2014 had remained, the government had uh, evidence that um, some of the inside information was to help pay off loans. So it would not have raised the issue of friendship, at least not as much. So it's important because it's high profile. Bob, the defense seemed to argue that the only way the jury could convict Walters here was if they believed Tom Davis, the uh, former chairman of Dean Foods, who was passing information to Walters. And they argued that he was lying. He had debts. He, he had done all sorts of unsavory things. Um, how much did the case really rely on Davis's testimony? I don't actually think that the case was all that reliant on Davis's testimony. Uh, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence as well in the form of, uh, for example, phone records. Right. So Mr. Davis, of course, would pass on uh, the information uh, to Mr. Walters, uh, and Mr. Walters would then oftentimes phone to place his trades literally within the same minute uh, that he got off of the phone with Mr. Davis. So if you've got a pattern of that sort that's sort of repeated over and over and over again, uh, all that Mr. Davis's testimony actually ends up doing is sort of providing a little bit of narrative context, a little bit of extra color. Uh, but as far as the sort of fundamental evidence that's needed to convict is concerned, it seems that that was actually all available even without Mr. Davis. In fact, one juror said after the verdict that the call logs helped convince the jury, and it all came down to the trading and those phone records because they'd been in constant contact using those burner phones. <laughs> Precisely. Now, Peter, the hardest decision in any criminal trial is whether a defendant should testify. Walters did not testify at his trial. He may be second-guessing that decision now. Could it have made a difference? Yeah, that, that is the hardest decision, and it's one I would never second-guess because 
We don't know what Walters would have been like on the witness stand. Um, he had, uh, as Bob was saying, all those interactions with Davis. And if he testifies, the focus shifts from Davis and his many peccadilloes over to Walters. And if the jury thinks that Walters isn't being honest, it, it actually might have impelled them to convict him more quickly if that's possible. So uh, you'll always second-guess a decision when the jury comes back with a conviction. I don't think it would have made all that much difference because he would have been forced into a bad position of trying to say, no, I'm just a great gambler and ignore all that other objective circumstantial evidence. We're going to talk more coming up about Walter's defense, and part of it was that he was a great gambler. One of his brokers testified that he called him the Babe Ruth of risk because he was a fearless investor and predicting the stock market thanks to meticulous research. Walters will appeal the verdict. What are his chances on appeal? The Second Circuit rocked the Manhattan prosecutor's office by overturning some insider trading convictions three years ago. And how much time will Walters likely face when he's sentenced in July? And interesting, Michael, this was a case that started just a few days after Preet Bharara was uh, fired from his position. Well, the Southern District is probably feeling like they're back, aren't they? Las Vegas gambler Billy Walters built a fortune playing the odds, betting on sports. But at his insider trading trial, he faced the longest of odds in taking on the Justice Department, which wins almost 95 percent of its cases, and he lost. The 70-year-old Walters faces a long prison term. He told reporters after the verdict, To say I was surprised would be the biggest understatement of my life. I just did lose the biggest bet of my life. Frankly, I'm in shock. We've been talking to Professor Peter Henning, Professor at Wayne State University Law School, and Professor Robert Hockett of Cornell University Law School. Peter, the defense says they're going to appeal the verdict. What are the odds on appeal? Do you see any possibilities of issues to come up? Well, certainly the the odds are low, uh, or at least against uh, Walters, because um, most convictions are, in fact, upheld by the appellate courts, although he has very deep pockets, so he can hire the best lawyers. That will help his position a little bit. The the challenge he faces is that um, this was a verdict that was based on the jury's credibility assessments, and appellate court judges don't like to second-guess those decisions by a jury. They're not going to step in and say, Tom Davis wasn't a credible witness. That's what the jury is there for. As far as legal issues, um, it's hard to see there being too many of them. Um, the, The judge didn't admit any of the evidence about Carl Icahn, so that took an issue off the board. Maybe in the jury instructions, there's some issue in there. But given that Walters and Davis dealt with each other so much, it's hard to see any kind of challenge about Walters' knowledge or the relationship between the two men for the quid pro quo for tipping. So I, I wouldn't give it a much of a chance. Bob, Walters didn't testify, but now he has said that this was, you know, he lost the biggest bet of his life, and he's shocked at the verdict. He put on a defense about how he was a, um, you know, a, a very thorough researcher that he was willing to take risks on things, and he was, but he was a very serious investor uh, who got a lot of information, and that's, I guess, how he 
was saying he made money. Why did he think that this was such a good bet to go to trial with? I, I, I frankly can't imagine on what basis he made that decision, right? I mean, the case is just so overwhelmingly stacked against him. As Peter noted earlier, it's a very straightforward case. There aren't any you know, peculiar quirks to it. There's no complication to it. It's just a straight-up insider trading case, just like something out of the days of Joseph B. Kennedy. And indeed, it's even you know got the same kind of color that you see in cases from back then. So I, I frankly can't even see why he didn't simply plead guilty and then try to bargain for a, a lesser sentence or a lesser uh, penalty. Um, you know, and as as, as Peter also suggested it's it's hard to see what good it would have done him even to testify in the trial itself. I I can't imagine how it could have helped in any way uh, at all. No matter how good a gambler he was, no matter how good a stock picker he might have been, just the sheer fact that you have just hundreds of phone calls between him and Mr. Davis with trades placed right after those calls, there's just no way you can defeat that kind of evidence, uh, that kind of evidence stacked up against you simply by saying that you're a good trader or a good gambler. Uh, There's just just no way to do it. Peter, look forward and at the Second Circuit, the federal prosecutors there. Do you expect more aggressive prosecutions on insider trading now? Well, I, I don't know if they can get that much more aggressive, but um, certainly um, if there was the concern that they were hamstrung by the Newman decision, the Supreme Court's decision in Solomon that reaffirmed um, the the rules on tipping, um, you know, they can now bring the golfing friends case, the um, high school uh, friends you know, who are later then involved in Wall Street. The, the friendship cases are there. They're going to want to make sure that they're careful um, to have enough evidence to show a real close relationship. But I think they're going to continue to be aggressive simply because insider trading draws so many headlines. Peter, um, will you will you explain what happened with Newman just briefly in the Supreme Court? Sure. Uh, the, in Newman, the Second Circuit had overturned the convictions of hedge fund managers, saying that there had to be some benefit between a tipper and a tippee that was almost pecuniary. In the Solomon case, the Supreme Court uh, rejected Newman, or at least that part of Newman, and said, no, that friendship or family relationship can be enough for the benefit. So it it lowered the bar that the Second Circuit had tried to raise. Bob, one of the things that made this um, high profile was that the whole scenario involved the golfer Phil Mickelson at one point, and he was going to be called to testify, but didn't. But he didn't because he was going to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege. We have about a minute left. What? Why do you think he wasn't charged? Well, I, I think that probably my my best guess is that the prosecution decided, well, the easiest way to deal with Nicholson is just let the SEC take care of that. He, he pled, uh, he basically admitted to liability under a civil regulatory charge, and he disgorged all of the money that he made uh, on the trade in turn. Um, and I think that probably my guess is that the prosecution decided, well, that's good enough for Nicholson, because if we actually bring him into the prosecution, that's going to complicate things much further. It's going to take the trial much longer to, com- uh, to be completed. It's going to make every much more sort of complicated and, and time-consuming. So I think they just thought, well, he's not essential uh, to get Walters. Walters is just very easy to get on his own, uh, on the basis of his own behavior, uh, and we'll let the regulators take care of Nicholson. 
And, of course, Mickelson said that he would be taking the fifth if they did call him, which was a stopgap there. Thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School, and Peter Henning, professor at Wayne State University Law School. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, Barclays CEO Jess Staley is being investigated for trying to unmask an anonymous whistleblower last year. He faces a significant pay cut, a fine, or even a ban from the industry. I'm June Grosso with Michael Best. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. This is Bloomberg.